0: song. Thank you, Miss Connie. All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, He's still risen. Somebody say amen to that. He'll still be risen tomorrow. Amen. And the day after that, I say that because very often that Sunday morning of Easter uh, is a day that is packed with focus and attention and energy and excitement. And sometimes, you know, after, uh, after it's all said and done, we sort of slide back into that mediocrity. I don't think that's a good thing. We ought to be reminded, hey, he's as risen tonight as he was this morning. And he'll be as risen tomorrow as he has been today. Second Corinthians chapter number 12, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. Details a, uh, an episode in the life of Paul and God's goodness and grace. Paul says in verse number 1, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above fourteen years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise, and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Am I strong? Let's pray together. Father, we love You. What a blessing today has been. And we know You are not done yet, Lord. We know that as we draw our focus and attention to Your precious Word in these next few moments, that You'll be able, once again, through Your Word, to speak to our hearts, Lord, to convict us, to encourage us, uh, to draw us closer unto Thee, Lord, to drive from our life the things that would stand in between us and our fellowship with You. Lord, we just know there's still work to be done this evening in our hearts and lives, else we wouldn't be here. And so I pray that You would do that work, do it in a way that would drive glory only unto Yourself. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, I love You and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we went through this morning talking about resurrections in the Word of God, listed all 15 separate resurrections that are found in the Word of God, there were two resurrections that got what we might call honorable mentions. In other words, there are certain things about them that I think preclude them from being really uh, counted amongst the biblical resurrections. Uh, but they are uh, events of, of interest and things that are astonishing, remarkable in what is taking place. Now, one of them uh, is in Revelation 13 and it is the uh, resurrection of the Antichrist after he's wounded with a deadly wound. And there was a couple reasons that we said that uh, we won't include that in that list. One of them uh, is that we're not really conclusively uh, decided that he is dead. Now, I think there's a likelihood he probably will be, but really it's on the other side of that issue that I think it also falls short. Whether or not the Antichrist is actually dead when he is slain with that wound, uh, we know that he is raised not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. And I'm not sure that the life that is given to him Uh, is anything close to what we would call life, and certainly not what we would say is the life that God gives to a man. Rather, I think, as opposed to being resurrected, the Antichrist will very likely simply be reanimated. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it means the devil will merely inhabit his body, and take over his body, and will use him as his instrument. However, there was another one that we mentioned this morning, and we've read about it tonight in our text. And that's the resurrection of Paul outside of the city of Lystra. There's a very simple reason we didn't include it in that list, and that's that we can't say conclusively that Paul actually died. Uh, In fact, Paul can't say conclusively whether or not Paul actually died. He says whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. And as I began to look at this passage, I I thought to myself, isn't it interesting that the Holy Ghost doesn't give us a definitive answer about that? How many of you know that, that not just the the uh, truth of the Word of God, not just what is said, but what is not said in the Bible is just as important. In other words, we could say this, that not only the speaking of the Word of God, but also the silence of the Word of God bears importance and significance and testimony. I'll tell you this, I don't know whether Paul died outside the city of Lystra. You don't know whether Paul died outside of the city of Lystra. Paul didn't know whether he had died outside of the city of Lystra. But sure enough, God knows whether he had died outside of the city of Lister. Now you say, well, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying, God could have told us that if He had wanted us to know. And in fact, as you read through our text this evening, you'll find there are some other things that, if we're to be honest, we're a little bit cloudy on. Now, I don't mean that we're not sure what God says. And I certainly don't mean that God doesn't know the answer. But what I mean is that God is has limited what He wants to reveal to us about certain things within this text. Uh, There is a, a divine, inerrant, inspired vagueness about certain qualities of what transpires here. And in each of these, I think we find some instructive truth for our life. You know, sometimes we think we've got all the answers. Sometimes we think we need all the answers. But rarely do we ever have all the answers. And that's usually by divine design. There are some things that you and I are better off Not knowing. Because God can do more through the lack of knowledge than He could were we to know the every detail about a particular matter. And so I want us to think about these three things that are found in our text. Uh, And the first we find is the mystery of Paul's condition. We are told by Paul whether in the body or out of the body, he cannot tell, though God certainly could have told us. So why does God not tell us? And what is God telling us by not telling us? Now you probably know a little bit of the background, the story. Uh, of what has taken place here. It does not say definitively in the Bible that it was outside of the city of Lystra that this transpired, but most uh, commentators uh, lean that direction. I tend to agree with it. I believe that what Paul is describing here is certainly something that is happening while he is hovering in between, we might say, life and death. It certainly, I don't believe, is something that is happening in a uh, moment of strength uh, he talks about glorying in His infirmities, in His weakness. He's not talking about days He feels good. He's not talking about days He feels strong. He's not talking about accomplishments and achievements, but He's talking about weaknesses. He's talking about battles. He's talking about failures on His part. And in the context of that, He begins to describe this event. We're given in Acts chapter number 14 a little bit of an idea of what may have been happening around this circumstance. Verse number 19 of Acts 14 says this, there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city. Now listen to this phrase carefully. Supposing he had been dead. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So here's a question I have for you. Was Paul dead or alive? Now I don't expect you to have an answer to that because not even Paul had an answer to that. But isn't it of interest that though God could have revealed to us whether Paul was alive or dead, He instead left it for us a mystery as to the condition that Paul was in. We find here, even in Paul's own words, some speculation about his condition. He says, listen, if I'm to be honest, I don't know what was going on. There's been times in my life, now I'm not talking about seeing visions, I'm not talking about having quote-unquote experiences, but what I am saying is there's been times in my life, and you've probably had times like this where if we were to be honest, we didn't know what God was doing in our lives. Uh, We knew that God loved us. We knew that He had a plan for us. Uh, But like Paul, we say, man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know what's going on in my life. I can't really articulate where I'm at, what's going on, but I know that God is doing something. You know, you don't always have to have a handle on things for God to have a handle on you. You don't always have to have everything figured out for God to have everything figured out. In fact, I'd say this, sometimes God does His best work when we can't even tell whether we're in the body or out of the body. What is the significance of this condition? We know there's some speculation about it. I can't give you an answer. And Paul couldn't give you an answer. He could today, undoubtedly. Now, we know when we're in heaven, we know even as also we are known. We, we see uh, face to face, not through a glass darkly. And undoubtedly, Paul knows today whether it was true. But why was it that in Paul's life, God didn't reveal it to him? Why was it that God wanted to keep him in the dark about it. Let's look again at what Paul says in our text before us. You remember what he says back in verse number 5? Paul says this about this individual. Now Paul is doing something a little bit artistic here, if we were to use a word for it. Uh, he's talking in the third person. I remember asking my English teacher one time, I, his name was Mr. Evans, not our Mr. Evans, but another Mr. Evans. He was our, our high school principal. And I remember in English class one time sitting there, and I raised my hands and I said, uh, Mr. Evans, I said, is it grammatically appropriate or is it grammatically correct to talk in the third person? And he looked at me and he squinted his eyes and he said, whether or not it is grammatically correct, it is most assuredly not socially correct to speak in the third person. <laughs> that was his way of saying you talk any way you want. but People are going to think you're a weirdo if you walk around talking in the third person. Paul's talking in the third person. He's saying, of such a man, and he's describing himself in this situation, but now, you might say, well, preacher, why do people talk in the third person? They might have a lot of weird reasons, but Paul had a very distinct reason. He was disassociating himself from the glory of what God did through the life of that individual. In other words, Paul's saying this, if God did anything in that man's life, He didn't do it because of Paul, He did it in spite of Paul. He said, I will glory in that man, whoever he may be, whoever that fellow was that God saw fit to catch up into the third heaven and speak unspeakable, unutterable things unto. That fellow has something to brag about. But Paul says, this, this guy right here ain't got nothing to brag about. And he says this in verse 5, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. And you say, Preacher, why is it that God did not disclose to us whether Paul was alive or dead? Here would be my simple answer, because it does not matter whether Paul was dead or alive. The work that God did in his life, he did because of the deadness of Paul's flesh whether that deadness was absolute, meaning whether, like the young man that we preached about this morning, there was no life left in him, no breath left in him, whether Paul had actually perished, or whether simply he was so depleted and so diminished by the ordeal he had been through, or not, whatever the circumstances, it was the deadness of Paul's flesh, and it was the life of Paul's spirit that permitted God to work in his life in such a way. Say, preacher, what, what do you mean to say by this? Well, let me read a passage to you out of Romans chapter 8 that may explain it a little bit. Romans chapter 8 verse 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now you notice that dichotomy he draws there. He says, when you're all about the flesh, you're focused on the flesh. But when your flesh is weakened, is persecuted, is afflicted, and you instead flee to the refuge of spiritual strength. You're going to be about spiritual things. He says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God." Boy, if there's anything, I, I, I'm not advocating tattoos, but if we're going to get one, let's tattoo that on the backside of our eyeballs. Amen? They that are in the flesh can not please God. doesn't just say they won't. It doesn't just say they struggle. It says they cannot. Whatever you and I might do in the flesh, though it may appear ever so spiritual, if it's done in the energy of our flesh, it does not please God. After all, what are we doing if we ain't trying to please God? Cannot please God. It says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You know, your life and mine it's got two inlet lines into it. There's a natural man, and there's a spiritual man. Where those two lines meet, there's a cutoff valve of kin, and it directly proportions the degree of which has influence in our life. You know why? Because our life only has one outlet. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, there's only one way. Our life has a testimony. We are living, we are behaving in a certain way. Men are watching our life. Our life is having effect and meaning. It is touching this world. It is changing things around it for good or for ill. We're not living a double life. And even if we try to live a double life, that double life is really just a single life because God sees everything. But there are two sources, two, we might say, wellsprings in our life that determine how we do things. There's the natural man. There's the new man. There's the flesh. There's the Spirit. And that valve that dictates the measure to which each one has the preeminence, that's called obedience and surrender. When we surrender to the Lord, here's what we do. We shut off that valve to the old man and we open the line from the new man. When we choose to live in our flesh, in our strength, in our ability, we turn it the other way and we open up that valve for the old man, the flesh. Let me be clear in what I'm about to say. Never at any time is our behavior unmitigated in in its, in in its output. We're all touched by flesh. We're all scarred and stained by sin. And I'm aware of that. But what I'm saying is, there's a proportion there. The more that that valve is open towards letting God have His will and way in our life, the less the flesh is able to get its input in our life. And the more that we let the flesh have the right of way, the less that the Spirit of God is able to influence and work in our lives. And only one person whose hand is on that valve, and that's you and I. So, Preacher, why is it that God doesn't tell us whether Paul was alive or dead? Because the reality is this, we don't have to be physically about to die to be used of God. But we do have to, in a like manner, mortify our flesh in such a way that God can have the right of way and can have the control of our life. You see, it really doesn't matter whether Paul was alive or dead physically in the flesh. But what does matter is whether you and I are living in the strength of the flesh or living in the strength of the Spirit. What great truth do we learn from it? We learn this. When I decrease, He increases. When I die, He lives. When I'm less, He's more. When I let Him have His way, my flesh don't get its way. But when I'm in the flesh, I cannot please God. For if I'm getting my way, He's not getting His way. God could have told us, but here's what we would have done. If if the Bible had told us he was dead, physically dead, we would have said, can't nobody see what Paul saw and experience what Paul experienced? Can't nobody be used of God in that way and learn the lessons that that Paul learned? Can't nobody do that unless they physically die. That's not entirely true. You and I don't have to physically die, but we do have to mortify the deeds of the body. We do have to, as Paul would later on go to say, he said, I die daily. We've got to learn to die to self daily if we want God to get glory out of our life. There's significance in His condition. Even in the vagueness of that condition, even in God not explicitly telling us what happened, it's because we don't have to know anything more than what we know, which is that the closer that a man gets to mortifying the flesh, to killing self. And I'm not talking about suicidal. I'm not talking about physical harm. But I'm talking about mortifying our ambitions and our desires and our life. Putting those to death on the altar of surrender to God and saying, Lord, here's my life. Take it, let it be consecrated only to Thee. The more that we do that, the more God can exalt us up out of our current situation and use us and show us things that other men do not get to see. I see the significance, but then I notice the spirit of his condition. And I like this. We read this, but I'm going to read it again. Verse 5, Paul says, Of such an one will I glory. Now why does he say that? Because he don't even know if he's talking about himself in the strictest sense of the term. He says, I don't even know if the Paul that God caught up to glory is the same as the Paul holding this pen. Now he's not saying he wonders whether two different individuals, but he's saying, It's entirely possible that who I am, my ambitions, my desires, this life was put to death for God to do that. In other words, he talks about it as though it's an entirely different person. He says, of such an one will I glory. I'm not going to glory in me, but I will glory in what God did through me. He says, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, he says, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. Now I forbear lest any man should, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that he heareth of me. In other words, what I find is this, the more that we mortify self, the more we magnify the Savior. The more we magnify the Savior, the more we humble ourselves before Him. The more we die to self. You know, uh, pride can only live in a beating heart. Uh, Self-resolve and resilience can only live in a willful spirit. When we put ourselves to death on the altar of sacrifice to God, we say, Lord, it's not my life, it's Your life, and I yield it to You. When we do, you know what we find? We find that we ourselves have nothing to brag in. Anything we would have boasted in belongs to that man that had to be put to death for God to be able to work in our life. So instead, you know what we find? We find that the only part of ourselves we can glory in is that life that's been given us in Jesus Christ. It creates in us a humility. There is such a thing as false humility, and some folks are just eat up with it. Uh, There's there's some folks don't think of themselves high enough, and some folks think of themselves more highly than anybody else does, including God. And the truth is, false humility always seeks to draw the spotlight upon self in the amplification of humility. Isn't it a gross and ironic thing? I've said this before, tongue-in-cheek, that I pride myself on my humility. I've met people like that, haven't you? Uh, They're not trying to brag, but they're the humblest person around. That's not real humility. You know, real humility can only exist in a life that's been eclipsed by the glory of God. Because real humility exists in juxtaposition, in comparison, sitting side by side by the glory of the Lord. It's not saying, hey, I'm nothing and nobody. It's saying, why are you looking at me in the first place? If I'm anything, it's only because of Him." It's not saying, hey, I'm nothing and nobody. It's taken for granted you already know that all of us are nothing or nobody. But instead it's lifting a hand towards Him and saying, isn't He wonderful? Isn't He precious? In Paul's life, this event, this mortifying of self, it did not produce a pride within him. And I get the feeling, and I don't know, us preachers are going to have a lot to apologize to some of these Bible characters for when we get to heaven. We've been talking bad about them our whole life, but I get to sense that Paul sometimes struggled with pride. I get to sense that Paul was not so vain a person as to engage in false humility. And so I think there were times, and the the pages of God's Word, they sort of emanate this when you read through the chapter prior to this and the chapter prior to that one. He talks about everything God's done in his life and how that he ain't no fool, uh, that that he is not uh, nobody, that he has paid the cost, that he has suffered for Christ, that he has lived for the Lord. Then he comes down to chapter 12 and he says, but you know, after all, all that really don't matter because if any of it was done, it was not done by the power of Paul. It was done by the power of Christ. Therefore, he's the one I'm going to glory in. Real uh, spirituality, real depth produces humility in us because it acknowledges and recognizes that it is only the diminishing of the influence of self that can lead to the magnifying of Christ in our life and to the usability of our life for the glory of God. In other words, the more you and I are in on this thing, the less God can be in on it. The less that you and I, I'm talking about our, amb- our ambitions, our desires, our will, the more that that's mortified, the more that God can have the right of way. In other words, where have we got that valve turned to? Is it turned with the new man with obedience to God, with yielding to Him wide open? With that influence of the flesh shut down as tight as we can possibly do it, or is it the other way where we're letting the flesh have its will and its way, thereby we're quenching the influence of the Holy Spirit? Well, you know where most of us are. Uh, most of us are about where we. I, I'm like I, you probably got one. I don't know. I, I've got my shower's got one of those single knobs. You know what I'm talking about? Single knobs where you turn it one way or the other, and you got to get the adjustment just right. And every once in a while, uh, whenever I go to shut it off, I'll accidentally turn it. And then when I turn it on the next time, it'll either freeze me out or it'll scald me half to death before I realize what's going on. Leo will be up getting ready and she'll hear somebody yelp and she'll she'll know that I've gotten it wrong in there somehow. But you know, most of us, we want that somewhere in the middle. You know why we want that? That's where it's comfortable. You know, that's true about that valve in our spiritual life too. We like it somewhere in the middle. You know why? Because that's where we're comfortable. We want enough of God to keep guilt and shame off our conscience, but we don't want so much of them that we can't have a good time and do our own thing. The truth of the matter is, if we ever let God get a hold of us, let Him mortify us, the way that He did Paul outside of the city of Lystra, was he dead or was he not preaching? Well, I don't know if he was physically dead, but I sure know enough uh, that uh, Paul, in his ambition, in his will, and his desire, was left lying dead in that street that day. And for that to happen, God could use him in a mighty way. So I think the mystery of His condition. There's a second thing that is left in the shadows in our text. Look at verse number 7. Paul says, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, uh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure." He says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me." Now there's a few things I can't tell you tonight. I can't tell you whether or not Paul was dead outside the city of Lystra. Paul tonight could, but when he pinned this down, he couldn't. God has known the whole time, but God didn't see fit for us to know. There's a second thing that I can't tell you tonight, and that's I can't tell you what this thorn in the flesh was. Commentators have had opinions and, you know... Uh, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one. Amen? And uh, sometime I'm going to say that and some poor unfortunate soul born without a belly button is going to come up and embarrass me. But <laughs> commentators have opinions. I, I lean towards how most of them probably do. I, I think probably it's talking about that ophthalmalia, that, that eye condition that Paul probably had. I think that's as likely an explanation as in him. Although, if we're to be honest, a man that travels with a physician named Luke all the time was probably prone towards physical infirmity. And certainly, after you'd been beat 40 times, save one and shipwrecked and fought the wild beasts at Ephesus and been stoned and been beat, you'd probably have a few aches and soreness and bruises as well. So we really can't say what that thorn in the flesh is. But do you know God knew? And even we might say, though, Paul did not know whether he was dead or not. Paul did know what this thorn in the flesh was, but he chooses not to disclose to us the details of it. You say, preacher, what was the sort of this? Well, we really can't say. It could have been a physical malady. I think there's a good indication to think it was a physical malady. I think the fact that it's called a thorn in the flesh suggests to us That probably it was a physical malady. But here's the truth of the matter. We can't really say what it was. And you say, Preacher, why is that? Well, I can't give you every answer. But I can tell you this, I'm sure glad enough because we all have thorns in the flesh. And they probably ain't what Paul had. And you know, uh, I know how stubborn you and I are. If God had said what it was, then if we didn't have exactly what Paul had, we would have wrote this whole passage off and said, well, Paul don't know what I'm going through, or I don't know what Paul's going through. But you see, God is wise enough to understand that though our malady may be different than what Paul's is, our remedy remains the same. I don't know what your battle is that you're going through. There's people in this room facing things I couldn't imagine facing. And then there's things I've been through that at one time I would have never thought I could have survived. There's things going on in people's lives that are... Big enough it would seem to crush the world and all of its resources, And yet God is sufficient for all these things. And it's a reminder to me that I don't necessarily know what you're going through. I don't know what Paul went through. You don't know what Paul went through. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what most of the people around you are going through. But God knows what everybody's going through. The Bible says we have not in high priests which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But when all it was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and uh, grace to help in time of need. In other words, you say, Preacher, I don't know what it was. No, but God knew what it was and He deliberately kept it silent so that when you read of Paul's thorn, you'd be reminded of your thorn. When you found out God was sufficient for Paul's thorn in the flesh, you'd know that He's sufficient for your thorn in the flesh. The sort of it is kept quiet. But then you know there's another thing about this? And I won't say we don't have an answer. I'd say we have too many answers on this. And that's this question. What's the sort of it? Well, we really don't know. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. And there is divine wisdom in that because we all have varying thorns in the flesh, battles that we're facing. Here's the next question. What was the source of it? If the first question has no answer, the second question has too many answers. In fact, I'd say this. There is at least three possible answers to this question. Where did his thorn come from? Number one, I'd say this, did it come from the flesh? Paul says it did. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. For a man that has been talking about physical infirmity, it wouldn't be surprising at all to find out he's talking about some physical malady. You know, I found this, that in your life and mine, uh, even if the devil ain't trying to destroy us, which he always is, even if the world is content to leave us alone, which it never is, our greatest enemy still resides with us and within us day in and day out. It's that flesh we see every day when we look in the mirror. Even if ain't nobody trying to destroy you, your flesh will give you enough of a fit to bury you if it can. And I found that the greatest problems I have in life cannot be attributed to the uh, to the malignity, to the, to the cruelty and the malice of some other person. Just to be frank, I trip over my own feet enough for to make shipwreck of my life. So it's possible we're talking about the flesh. But now somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher. You say it came from the flesh, but the very next statement says it's the messenger of Satan that's sent to buffet him. Isn't that interesting? So it could have come from the flesh, but it also could have come from the devil. Uh, in other words, the devil wants to destroy our lives. And if we choose to serve God, if we seek to let God have His will and His way in our life, we place a target on our back whereby the devil will try to shipwreck our lives. You, you mark her down. The devil would love to see your family destroyed. He'd love to see your marriage destroyed. He'd love to see your kids go to the world. He'd love to see this church be tore all to pieces. He'd love to see your life fall into disarray. Don't be naive and think that the devil ain't interested in you. Uh, You may say, well, what could I do? But you know, only God and the devil know what you could do for the Lord. They know better than you know. And that's why the Lord's trying to help you and the devil's trying to stop you. I'd say this, the devil was certainly trying to destroy Paul. But now, wait a minute. There's a phrase here. And I don't know if you noticed, it's the next phrase. Let's read it all together here. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me. But now notice this last phrase, lest I should be exalted above measure. I like to watch him crime shows sometimes. You ever watch them crime shows? Where they got they're tracking down some person that and they'll they'll talk about something on there, Brother Ken. They'll talk about their MO, their modus operandi. And what they're talking about is there's a certain way that a criminal commits his crimes. And you can tell by the crime committed something about the, the criminal. I'd say this. When I read that phrase, that don't fit the devil's modus operandi. That don't fit his M.O. I've never known the devil to show up and say, your life's everything that it ought to be. You're just a little too prideful. He don't work that way, does he? In fact, I'd say this, that pride is the devil's domain. He's got a copyright. He's got a trademark on it. The very first time that any heart was lifted up in pride uh, in this old broken world was when the devil said, I will sin and be like the Most High. He ain't afraid of pride. In fact, He encourages pride every way that He can. So when the Bible says that Paul was given this, lest he should be exalted above measure, it's not saying that the messenger came from Satan to buffet him because Satan didn't want him to be exalted. Because I'd remind you, though there was a messenger that came from Satan, though there was a thorn that was in the flesh, all of them, Paul says, was given to him. He says there was given me. Now where'd that come from? Well the Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights with whom is no bearableness, neither shadow of turning. Somebody's gonna say this ain't a very good gift. We ain't read to the end yet. Turns out to be a good gift. We don't have to wonder where that come from. The Lord sent this thorn into His life. In, in other words, I'd ask it this way. Was it the flesh? Yes. Was it the devil? Yes. Was it the Lord? Double yes. God was working in this situation. I had someone ask me this question just the other day, a simple question that has occurred to me many a time. And that was, if the devil's trying to destroy my life, if he's out to destroy me, we know that he is, but God also wants to perfect me. The question was asked to me, how do I know if it's the devil or how do I know whether it's the Lord? And my answer back was this, it really don't matter whether the devil's trying to destroy you or not, whether the flesh is trying to cripple you or not, and probably both those things are true, it don't change the fact that in the midst of all of that, God is trying to work in your life effectually. We see this in the life of Job. And this is one of the things the person asked me about Job's life. You know, one of the the most glorious characteristics of Job's testimony is that never once does he give the devil credit for anything going on in his life. He never says, the devil took my kids. He never says the devil wrecked my health. He never says the devil stole my wealth. Instead, you know what he says? He says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, though he, talking about the Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In other words, you say, preacher, what if the flesh is weakening me? God can through that weakness produce strength. Preacher, what if the devil's trying to destroy me? God can make even the heathen to sing His praises. God's so sovereign, He can even use the devil's attacks in your life to purify you and mold you into the image of Christ. You see, the source of this is a mystery to us. And it's meant to be. Because very often, you know what I find? The source of our afflictions are often a mystery to us. Last time you was going through a trial, could you say for sure that it wasn't the product of your own decision? could you say for sure that it wasn't the devil trying to destroy you? I'll tell you this, you for for sure could say with uh, with certainty that whether some of your mistakes may have contributed to the circumstance you were in, whether the devil was trying to use it to destroy you and likely he was, you could say assuredly that God sought to get glory out of the situation. See, the question is really not who's trying to work in our life. The question is who are we going to let work in our life? Who's going to get the victory? Who's going to get the right away? So the source of it was a mystery. But then notice the steadfastness of it. Verse number 8. Here we have another mystery. And it's answered in the next few verses. But Paul says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. I don't know about you, but unanswered prayers are a mystery to me. Especially when I'm the one praying. Somebody say amen there. Paul prayed and he sought the Lord. And you know that God did not explain to Paul why. He just said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. You know what you'll find in your life? Sometimes the greatest problems you have are the most stubborn and the most unwilling to depart. I've counseled with people, and you probably know people, that have fought the same battle for 40 years. A battle with family, battle maybe with children that are wayward, battle maybe with certain sins that are besetting in their life. And they prayed and they begged God and they've sought God's help. That thing just seems to have stuck in their life. Paul begged God to take this away three times. I don't think that just means Paul happened in casual conversation to mention it to God three times. I think what that means is Paul put it on his prayer list and started praying. And then he got peace and he said, alright, God, I'm going to quit asking for it. You evidently want me to have this. And so he took it off his prayer list, said, I'm just going to trust in the Lord. But then the burden got heavy again and he picked it back up and said, God, I need Your help. Please take it away. And then once again, convinced that it wasn't going to go anywhere, he said, "All right, Lord, I'm content. I'll rest in You. But once again, it grew too heavy and here he finds himself again praying and begging God, God, please take it away. And then we have the answer that finally comes. So, these three things. The first is the mystery of his condition. Was he dead or was he alive? We really don't know. But you see, that's the point. We need to be so surrendered to God that you look at our life and you can't tell whether it's Toby or whether it's Jesus. You can't tell whether it's Ken or whether it's Jesus. Uh, you, we need to be so surrendered to Him that if you were to look at our life and say, is there is there any Fred in there? You'd have to say, I can't find none. I can't find none there. If He's there, He's barely alive. All I see is Jesus. The mystery of His condition. Number two, the manner of his affliction. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was, but it really don't matter. We have some answers as to where it may have come from, but it really don't matter. You know why? Because it was of the Lord. And if Paul would let the Lord have His will and way, then the victory would be His. Then there's a third thing, and I'm going to call it this, the manifestation of God's ministration in His life. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, And He, God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. First question, was he dead or alive? Really don't matter. The more dead we are to self, the more alive He is in us. The second question, what was that thorn in the flesh? We really don't know. And it really don't matter. God can have His will and way, whatever our afflictions are. Number three, here's a question. What was His grace in Paul's life? When we talk about the grace of God, what we're really talking about is the expression of God's goodness in our life unmerited by our own self you've heard the little the little uh, acronym that's been given uh god's riches at christ's expense what grace is but what is the grace of god how do you define the grace of god i'd say this in one sense the grace of god is the forgiveness that he pardons the sinner with when the sinner comes to him it is what christ did on calvary that we did not deserve but that he did for us motivated by the love of god and by the desire to work in our lives Can I say this? That sure enough wasn't the last bit of the grace of God I got. Man, hey, listen, I get the grace of God every day. Beautiful family God's given me I don't deserve. I got no business being married to that beautiful woman, having these wonderful kids. And yet God in His richness and grace has allowed me to. Wonderful church that I pastor. I mean, wonderful people that love me, that that love on my family, that ought to know better than to follow somebody like me, but they do it anyway. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. We could talk about God meeting our financial needs, couldn't we? Certainly, hey, listen, there's scriptural precedent for this. Uh, For the Bible says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes became He poor, uh, that through His poverty we might be made rich. Certainly in your life and mine, hey, God has fed me out of His storehouses plenty of times. How did He do that? By His grace. So when you talk about the grace of God, it's almost like talking about that thorn in the flesh. We're talking about a category. But we're not necessarily talking about specifics. I'll tell you this, it's all good and well to deal in the abstract unless you're Paul and you're begging God to have this thorn in your flesh removed. Then you don't just want platitudes, you want help. In other words, you want to know how God's going to help you. Yet when we read here, what does God's answer say? God's answer is not, Paul, I'm going to take that thorn out of your flesh. It's not Paul, I'm going to make it miraculously such that that thorn does not afflict or affect you. It is not Paul, I'm going to take you on to heaven and you won't have to deal with it anymore. Instead, in exquisite vagueness, God looks at Paul and says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, we could say this. We see in this passage the remedy of His grace. God doesn't tell him what the manifestation of that grace is. All He does is say, Paul... The answer to your life's problems are grace. Now when we talk about grace, we're distinctly talking about God's benefits rooted in the person of Christ Jesus. That's why it's grace, is because in Him we have these things. So it's almost like God is saying this. Paul is crying out to the Lord, Lord, why do I have this thorn? Why do I, why am I dealing with this? God, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, God, I'm clinging to you, take this thorn away. And it's almost like God taps him on the shoulder and said, Paul, haven't you noticed how you're begging me? How you're pleading me? How you're clinging to me? Ain't you noticed how much we've been talking, Paul, since you had this thorn in the flesh? Haven't you noticed, Paul, how much time we've been spending together since you've been dealing with this infirmity? In other words, it's almost like he's saying, Paul, just keep coming to me. Just keep coming to me. The grace that you have that has been bestowed upon you in the person of Christ Jesus has the answer for your problem. Paul, I'm not going to tell you what that answer is. I want you to keep coming to me until you get the answer. In other words, very often in our life, the answer that God gives us to our affliction is deliberately vague for this purpose that we might seek after Him. Often the grace that God gives us is not even in the relieving of the infirmity, but rather it's in the relationship that's involved. It's in the fact that we grow closer to God through what we're going through. We see the remedy of His grace, but then notice the revelation of His grace. I, I think God does reveal to Paul how that he is enjoying and, and how the grace of God has ministered unto him. He says this, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now let me point something out to you. Paul had a thorn before this. To our knowledge, he had a thorn in the flesh after this. Paul had an infirmity before this. My knowledge, Paul had an infirmity after this. Nowhere is it said that Paul cut that God comes along and says, Paul, I'm gonna lift the burden off your shoulders. But here's what God does say: God looks at him and says, Paul, if this burden was light enough for you to carry on your own, you'd carry it on your own. But because it is so heavy, you've come to me that I might carry it for you. In other words, my strength is made perfect, made complete, made manifest. We we can use this term, I believe made real to the world through your weakness. The weaker you are, Paul, the more people can see my strength. And therein, you know what Paul finds in the midst of his suffering? If I could use one word to describe what the manifestation of this grace is, it would be this word, purpose. Purpose. He is not given the answer to every question, but he is made to know that God has purpose in it. And that that purpose is being unfolded before him as he obeys the Lord. The revelation of his grace is not the answer. It's Paul realizing that he's better off without the answer. I remember hearing a preacher say something about this passage years ago and it's always stuck with me. Later on, Paul will say in our text, I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Has ever dawned on you that Paul was begging God to take away the very thing in his life that brought God the most glory, and that gave him access to the most power of Christ? If Paul had had his way, just like if you or I had my way, God pluck every thorn out of our flesh. We wouldn't have a single uncomfortable thing in our life, and thereby we would be rendered weak, ineffectual, useless in the work of God. It's the very thing he's begging God to take away that that. God looks at him and says, Paul, I'm going to take that away. That's the thing I'm using most in your life. I know you don't like it. I know it's not pleasant. But Paul, I don't know if you're aware of this. This life ain't about you being comfortable. It's about me getting glory. This life ain't about us being comfortable. God does not begrudge us our comfort. God is, is not a petty sadist that desires for us to suffer. But our purpose here is not to be comfortable. Our purpose here is to be consecrated and to give glory unto Him. And what Paul learns through the midst of this ordeal is he learns that through this very weakness, the strength of God is being made manifest. And you know what that then produces? Notice this, and I'm done tonight. Look what he says at the end of verse number 10. He says, for when I am... Well, let's back up. We'll read the entirety. Look back at verse number 9. He says, most gladly therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. You ever had some of those things? You ever had some infirmities? Bodily weakness and illness that you asked God to take away? You ever had reproaches? Had somebody that despised you or hated you or, or ill or maltreated you? You ever had necessities? How many times do we think that the extent of the glory God can derive from our needs is in meeting them? When very often it is that, boy, we're getting. Very often, God gets more glory out of the patience we exhibit when the need is not met than He does out of the praise that we give when the need is met. I don't have time for it, but we could go to the Book of Colossians, and you know what we'd find? We'd find that the greatest evidence of, of supernatural strength is patience. Not power, patience. you got some necessities, you got some needs in your life, you've got some persecutions, you've got some distresses. Paul said, I'll glory in those. I'll take pleasure in those. And here's why he says, for when I am weak, then am I strong. You know, we don't have anywhere else in the Bible where he prayed and asked God to take his thorn away again. Maybe he did, I don't know. You don't either. But, but I think what we could at least say is this, that at least for this moment, Paul learns to rest in His grace. He learns to quit asking for an answer and acknowledge that sometimes the answer is found in not getting an answer. Sometimes the greatest work God does, He does in the darkness of our life. When we're confused, when we don't understand, and when we cannot explain. Paul says if that's what it takes for God to get glory, I'll take pleasure in infirmity. I will glory in my infirmities. I'll quit running from my suffering and instead start running into the arms of God with my suffering and allow God to have glory. You say, preacher, I don't have all the answers. Well, I don't either. Paul don't either. God does, but He probably ain't going to give you all the answers. But He will give you the answers that you need. And just because He doesn't give you an answer It doesn't mean He has not given you a solution and a remedy. Just because we don't get the answer doesn't mean we haven't gotten instruction. What we need to understand is even in that silence, there is sovereign purpose. And we need to depend on the Lord and we need to ask this, Lord, You could answer any time. So help me to hear Your silence. Help me to learn from the vagus. Help me to find purpose in the lack of clarity. Help me to trust You through it all. Let's bow together tonight as the musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the message. If the Lord spoke to your heart, I and I don't know what He might have said, but whatever He did, I, I think it would be fit if you just obeyed Him and met Him in this altar and let Him have His will and His way. Father, I pray now that You'd bless this invitation. pray that Your people would get help from You. Lord, I love You. I ask it in Christ's name with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. Miss Connie's going to play. What about you tonight? We got some questions.